0: Hi, this is Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this podcast episode, I'll be talking with Thad McElroy. Thad is an author and consultant who writes and blogs at thefutureofpublishing.com. His consulting work and experience reaches into many aspects of publishing, from print and the origins of desktop publishing to analysis of the latest tech, digital book publishing, and supply chain optimization and other areas. In addition to consulting, writing books, and blogging, Thad is also an accomplished speaker who has spoken at hundreds of events, from conferences to corporate meetings. In this interview, we're going to talk about Thad's career, his interests in tech, and his recently published report, An Authoritative Look at Book Publishing Startups. So thank you, Thad, for being on our podcast.
1: Thank you, Lynn. Glad to be on board.
0: Thanks. Um, In these interviews, I normally like to uh, start talking, asking people about um, what I call their origin story. Um, Mm -hmm. You've got a great one that that ranges widely across the publishing industry. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, how and why you first got interested in publishing. And uh, you know an overview of your path to where you are today.
1: Sure, I I, I can go back centuries, but that's, uh, I'll only dip briefly into that. But you know, I came out of a I guess you well know, literary family. I mean, not not that highbrow literary family, although Kenneth Graham <laughs> being the the one that I can point back to. That's that's fairly uh, literate. But the, uh, uh, my of father Wind, was Wind in the Willows, right? Uh, yep. Yeah, yeah, he was, uh, we have a very direct lineage, and you know, my great-uncle, who is also an author, um, he spent time with him as a boy, uh, and then, so that was Lawrence Hillgram, who wrote a number of, of actually, yeah, books for young adults at the turn of the last century, uh, which had were best you know, sellers and award winners at the time, and totally unreadable today, <laughs> and then my father was a novelist and had... Uh, two novels published. He was working on a third one when he died. Uh, did a lot of radio work. Uh, at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which you well know, CBC. Um, and so the, you know, that was sort of a milieu in which I grew up. My father always said to me, "Oh, you know, you're not the creative one in the family. You're going to be a, an engineer. It's your sister who'll become a writer, and she does write, but she's not published." But my my interest gravitated to book publishing. Where I really started in the industry was as a bookseller in Toronto uh, in the 70s and working for independent bookstores and then working for chain stores. And that's where I fell in love with the book industry. And that's really what's launched me forward to today.
0: And did you grow up around Toronto?
1: Yeah. yeah I was born in Toronto, lived there for the first 30 years of my life, then moved to San Francisco.
0: Okay. And what was the, um, I'm curious about your first, sort of entry into the publishing industry. Um, uh, You worked for a bookseller, um, and I believe you also, um, early early on, you edited um, a book about a uh, Canadian prime minister as well.
1: Yeah, well, that was after I started my first publishing company. So in the third or fourth year of my bookselling career, I had gone down to to San Francisco, actually. At the time, it was the annual convention of the American Booksellers Association, which is now the one called BEA, And in those days, it was a, you know, a a huge hall where all kinds of publishers, all shapes and sizes would display their wares. And I was there with a friend at the conference out of interest and saw all these small presses with nifty books where it's like, oh, you can't get those in Canada. And then it's like, well, maybe I could start a little company and distribute some of these small presses. And so I, I did, I started what was what I called Virgo Press because my partner was, and I were both September babies, so Virgos, and we started this as a distribution company out of my, really out of my bedroom, basically, uh, and then a friend came to me and said, you know, I've got this amazing idea, I think it'd be a big bestseller, how to win Canada's lotteries, was this idea, and uh, this was when they were still pretty new. They were phenomena. It was still something that was, you know, fresh and exciting. It's, you know, they didn't have them at every single place. They didn't have, you know, 27 different you know, kinds of tickets you could buy and so on. And so we published that book, and it was a bestseller. We we wrote it pseudonymously. He, I, and one other person they wrote various chapters uh, for it, and then I toured on behalf of the book. And so that was my first self. Well, it was a self-publishing experience, but you know, it, it launched what became Virgo Press, which ended up being a, a trade publisher of, of, of some substance. We ended up with 15 staff and about oh, 60 titles published over the about a three-year period, four-year period, uh, and then ran into a situation where the bank uh, decided they didn't want to be financing us anymore, called in our loan. I couldn't replace the financing and went bust. But I had had this wonderful four-year experience as a in my early 20s, you know, running a, a fun, small general trade publishing company out of Toronto. Well,
0: wow, I didn't realize it was that early on in your career that it was in your in your 20s that you were um, founding a company and writing bestsellers already. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> fascinating. Um, so you mentioned um, the the book expo. America, the BEA conference, was originally in San Francisco?
1: No, it used to travel around more than it it, it before. The, you know, they settled on New York much more recently, and then they tried Chicago last year, and that didn't work out. In those days, they would move it around as most conferences used to in those days, where It'll be West Coast one year, East Coast one year, then a center, it'll be Chicago usually one year, and they just circulate that way. So it just happened that year. It was a San Francisco year.
0: Okay. Okay. That's that's, uh, for those listening who might not be into the minutiae of publishing conferences. um, uh, There are uh, currently two big conferences in the United States, um, the BEA Conference and the Digital um, Book World Conference, which is actually just coming up. Uh, in a few days after this interview and with that we'll be um, giving a couple of talks. But um, the reason I asked about San Francisco is they these conferences tend to be focused around New York. Um, so it's interesting to know that there was yeah. a West Coast presence uh, yeah. for the big big players at a certain time. Um, yeah. I think I, I read um, on bio about you somewhere that you, um, you may have been one of the first people to publish a book that was created entirely with desktop publishing software.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was
0: wondering if you could talk a little bit about about that experience.
1: Sure, sure. That that was a great great fund, and as I stumbled into it, it was not like I, you know, had a vision and thought, ah, I see what's coming here, and I'm going to, you know, be the pioneer. It was just I at the time I after my publishing company went bust, I became a journalist, freelance journalist, and on the side with a couple partners, we started a small book packaging company. To call it a book packaging for people who aren't from the industry, they're the, they're the people between in the space between being an author and being a publisher. I- instead of just writing the manuscript, you also contract for all of the editorial, uh, design, illustration for all of the books you do. So you deliver what we would call camera-ready copy to the publisher. So it just goes straight to press on their side. They don't have any of the developmental expenses. You take that on yourself, so you get a higher royalty as a result of their lower overhead, and it gives you control of the project that you know, that in many cases because of the particular nature of the book, you want that kind of control. You don't want to give that up. So I was working on books of political cartooning. We I had this Yeah, it was fun that I've always loved political cartoons, and and I I did edited uh, two books, one on Pierre Pierre Trudeau and one on John Diefenbaker, where I told their life uh, stories um, with a focus on their political stories uh, in cartoons and in words. And so I had, uh, you know, on on one page would be a famous cartoon from one. I usually I would have about thirty, <clears throat> excuse me, cartoonists in each of the books. Uh, that would, uh, you know, with representative cartoons at each stage of their career matched up against quotes, either from one of those prime ministers or about them. And so it was a really fun way to go through and get a you know, a, a history lesson without having to read a big, long text. <clears throat> the Diefenbaker one, there's a, 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 you know, as Americans, you know, had, presidents have their own presidential libraries. Diefenbaker has his own library and center in Saskatoon, where in, in the spot where he's buried, and it's a, a great institution if you're interested in John Diefenbaker and in Canadian history. And I was, I, that's where I uh, tracked down the cartoons. Well, I was there. The director of the center said, "You, you know, next year the, the embargo on his personal papers is ending, and they're going to be open to researchers, but very few researchers know that. So, Thad, you've got an opportunity where you could edit." John Deacon Baker's personal correspondence with his wife, with his brother, uh, with his two wives, uh, with his mother, and do a volume. So I ended up doing a volume called Personal Letters of a Public Man. But most of his letters were handwritten. And so, you know, in those days, uh, to get something from handwriting uh, to typesetting meant to hire at great expense a typesetter <clears throat> who was, you know, familiar. Who was willing to take the effort to decipher the handwriting and put it directly into the typesetting machine? So it was a very expensive per hour cost. However, that year was the release of DTP desktop publishing. The Macintosh you know, it was maybe a year old. The first Mac. So this was about 19, this,
0: 1985 or so.
1: 85, yeah, okay. yeah. Aldous PageMaker came out, Adobe released the first uh, you know, ad- Adobe font that, that would work on the laser writer, on the laser printer, uh, and that could be, you know, manipulated through a Mac. And so it, it came to me as a suggestion to get hold of a Mac, which I did, and type up all the letters myself with the notion that I would then give the disk to the typesetting company and they would translate it into their machine language for the typesetting. But as it turned out, I didn't check whether that actually worked. (laughs) When I got all these letters typed, which there were hundreds of pages, and went to the typesetting companies we knew in in Toronto at the time, they were like, we don't know how to read one of these diskettes. We don't have any way to translate it. Sorry, but if you want this book published, we're going to have to do what what was it, what it was in the original thing we're going to have to retype them all on this Linotype system or this Compugraphic system that they were using and I was like oh man all of that for nothing uh, but my uh, my art director who we worked with on this project said you know I was just reading in popular mechanics that you can actually output from Microsoft Word version 1.05 uh, directly to this laser printer if we do that at 125% and then condense it, shoot it down to 80%, that'll tighten up the density of the type, and we can use that instead of typography, instead of a traditional typographic machine. Wow. And so we did, and the book was, was published. We, we, Doubleday was the publisher, and we showed it to the editor and art our, our director at Doubleday without telling them how we'd done it. We showed them a page spread and said, what do you think? Does it look okay, running heads, folios, the typography is uh, they were yeah fine sure and so out out came the book with a little credit on the, the front co- uh, on the copyright page saying you know this was produced with the laser writer and you know on Microsoft Word because pagemaker actually wrote a note at that time uh, that was just a few months before it appeared um, and when that was published Apple heard about it and uh, said they called me up they got in touch with me and said, do you realize what you've done? It's he's like, well, no, we just did this thing. But you're the first ones who have actually done this. We were hoping you know, that this would happen, but it's never happened. And so the, the, we got together, and they ended up connecting me with a company that was going to become the Canada's largest reseller of this equipment and technology. I became the product manager for this line, and so converted from being a journalist, a publisher, into a tech, a tech, really, but a tech in the publishing industry. So that's where my career sort of transitioned into where it is today, where all of the work I do is at that intersection of the culture of publishing and the technology of publishing.
0: That's um, a really fascinating story. Um, uh, I, I was wondering, um, I, I'm very surprised to hear, and, and you know, it's a great story to hear that Apple found out and were aggressive and, you know, sort of... Uh, watchful enough to see this and reach out to you. Um, what did I wanted to ask? though, what did Doubleday
1: do uh, when they found nothing? Them? Nothing, right? <laughs> nothing. Right, was, no, they didn't. They didn't know what mm-hmm. it meant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it, was, but they were fine with it. Yeah. It, it. it was fine.
0: Um, and um, you ended up uh in Vancouver at some point. Um, and I yeah, I'm. How that,
1: how that happened? Uh, I, I, I went to San Francisco when I about when I turned thirty. or and lived there for 15 years wanting to be closer to Silicon Valley um, and also get away from the the, the damn winters. And it seemed great, you know, and the city's fantastic and it was so close to all of the technology of publishing. So I thought that would be a great opportunity. I'm a dual citizen because my father was born in New York. And so that was a great move. I was there till. Early in the new millennium, and then my mother got cancer. She lived in Toronto. I moved back to Toronto to to, to look after her for what ended up being three years, and then found myself like, well, will I go back to San Francisco, or what am I going to do now? I don't really like Toronto. I, you know, I got away from here. I don't really want to be back here. And a friend uh, had an opportunity uh, with a house in West Vancouver, right on the ocean. And so I, I moved out to Vancouver and have been there since, very much in love with the city.
0: Oh, thanks. Thanks for, thanks for that answer. Um, it's great to, great to learn how all these things connect um, yeah. uh, to the, from the past to the present. You're um, in
1: Victoria. Yeah,
0: that's yeah. right. I'm in Victoria, British Columbia. So um, uh, I'm sort of relatively new here. Um, uh, I've learned that all winters in Canada are not bad, uh, <laughs> right. just 99%. Um, uh, Where
1: did you move there from?
0: I moved here from um, Montreal. I've moved around a bit myself oh, as well. Um, so you, you, you've been plenty of tough winters there. Yeah, yeah. And before that, I was in England for a few years. Um, so I've seen a little bit. Um, uh, yeah, the, the joke I tell is that uh, to my American and British friends is that I now live on a um, Canadian island in the Pacific Ocean, um, which is something <laughs> most people haven't even really heard of. Um, right. Uh, your um your latest book is called Mobile Strategies for Digital Publishing: A Practical Guide to the Evolving Landscape and it came out I believe um in 2015. Um, yep. and I wanted to ask you not we don't need to go into it in depth but um uh, what are some of the mobile strategies for digital publishing that you that you write about in the book and what's your general opinion about the current state of affairs?
1: I guess that is a big question. The the thing you know, the, the core the, the core you know, the kernel that is is most important on this topic is this rec- that everyone has to recognize you know, that the, the the smartphone is no longer an adjunct. It's no longer sort of oh, I have a smartphone as well, or you know, I work on a computer and I have this smartphone for when I go out. Or they have to get their mind around the idea that people have smartphones and then on the side. They have tablets and computers. The smartphone is the center of the universe for you know for an ever-increasing majority of the people that are owners of, of electronic devices. And so for publishers, you know, they, they who have always seen the smartphone as some kind of you know lowly adjunct to be you know at best accommodated, my message is no 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 start by thinking about the smartphone. When you're developing content, that you should be thinking, how is this going to display if someone's reading on a, on a smartphone? And then you can figure out what it's going to look like as a printed book. Because you know how to do that. You know how to make printed books. You've been doing that you know, throughout your career. But do you know how to make something optimal for a, for a smartphone? And of course, they don't. And they're, they're, not, you know, they're still not getting their mind around it fully. At the time, however, the, you know, there was this distraction around apps. And we all thought, you know that maybe the way to go, the way to embrace the space, was via apps, and that hasn't turned out to be true. There, you know, a lot of companies have done some interesting, innovative things around that space, but that hasn't been the answer. And, and so, is it in a browser, or do we just accept that the that the 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 default apps, Kindle app, you know, uh, Kobo app, that that is the interface by which books are communicated on smartphones? Well, as of today, yes. Is that the way it's going to be over time? I don't think so. I think there's a lot of transition still to take place. But my overall message to book publishers is start with the phone and work backwards from there.
0: And do you think publishers are uh, heeding that message?
1: No, not at all.
0: <laughs> not at all. And uh, why do you think that is?
1: Publishers are, are you, you know, I, I don't think is <laughs> it i'm trying to say it nicely right mm-hmm. so uh, publishers are not known to be technology adept uh, it's not been a tech you know a technology industry and even though i it is now a technology industry which is you know a big argument i, I try and push to people and in my presentation one of my presentations next week at tbw i'm trying to convince the audience that I like, in the same way, you should be thinking mobile first, you should be thinking technology first. You should be thinking of your publishing company as a technology company that also does these interesting artistic, craft, uh, cultural artifacts. But this has to take place via technology. And, you know, publishing companies are not in that mind space at all. And uh, to their great detriment, because they're losing market share to self published authors who are techn- technologically adept. And, you know, it, it, that's not the only reason they're losing that market share, but that's that's a significant part of it. And until they get their minds fully around technology, they're going to continue to be losing uh, sales as they've been doing over the last few years. And they're going to continue to be outclassed by newcomers.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. It reminds me of um, an experience I had at uh, the BEA or Book Expo America conference in New York. I think it was in um, 2013 um, when there was this panel of, you know, eminence, grand eminences, including the CEO of one of the big four, big five, do we say big four or big five publishers now? Big five, at? big five still. It's okay. Big, yeah. I've heard, I've heard both, but um, yeah. So one of the a CEO yeah. of one of the big five, you know, one of the, you know, top 50 lists of most important people in America kind of thing was on the panel and, um, uh, there were the heads of some other organizations. And I remember, um, the, Uh, either CEO or sort of higher up of one big company actually picked up an iPad that he had sitting in front of him and like turned to his right and waved it in the face of this big CEO and said, these things are real. It's not a science (laughs) experiment. They actually exist. Um, And there was nonetheless this wall, just this wall between uh, him and the CEO of the uh, big publishing company that was not penetrable. And it was amazing to just see it. I mean, it's the things we all know, but to actually see it happening in front of a big crowd as well was pretty, pretty amazing to me.
1: I can well imagine. Yeah, yeah they still see them as toys. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. unfortunate, really
0: unfortunate. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting what you say about technology as well. I mean, I've got I've got this um, theory that um, uh, there's sort of two big uh, cultures in corporate America right now. One is this sort of Old-timey one, you might say, where there where domain-specific expertise uh, is not necessarily required or might even be frowned upon, um, and so you get someone is uh, an executive is supposed to be an executive. They're supposed to be good at business, and it doesn't matter what the business mm-hmm. is. Um, they right. have these universal uh, skills that they can use, mostly networking and influence peddling and things like that. Um, but those are those are important and powerful things. And on the other hand, um, you have uh, the Domain specific expertise um, uh, leaders like, I mean, a classic example from right now would be Elon Musk, someone who is actually, sure. you know, not afraid of typing um, and and, right. and doing yeah. work um, and yeah. literally getting hands on. It doesn't just go to the factory to kind of put on a decorative hat and intimidate <laughs> the workers, yeah. but actually is, really knows what's going on. And it's it's a curious, it's a real interest, it's a really interesting question, you know, with software eating the world is... You know, Mark Andreessen famously said, you know, is it possible to succeed in business with no domain specific expertise at the top? Anymore? No. And you don't, no, you don't it's think
1: No, not. So? Okay. No, not at all. It's, it's, it's a, to me, it, you know, it's like, forget it. If, you're, if your senior management are not technology adept, if they're not comfortable and fully aware of what technology can do for them, then they're going to be bad you know they're not managing the company anywhere near its full potential period. You know I, I don't even want to argue with you about that, not you, you know, with any of them. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's unequivocal at this point from my point of view. You know, they, they are losing competitive advantage every day. They fail to put that expertise in at the highest levels of the company.
0: And I imagine that, as a consultant with um, technical expertise, this must be something that they're, they're, there are lots of people out there who I'm sure are aware that this is something they require and that they need to, you know, find that expertise somewhere.
1: Yes and no. I mean, it's, it's actually, you know, as someone who's been consulting now for 30 years, it's never been so difficult. My, you know, it's never been so challenging to get clients because of these these problems where they're. You know, the easiest way to deal with the fact that they're not technology adept is just to ignore it. And so to ignore it is to ignore that there's consultants out there that can help them. I, I'm very fortunate that I am keeping busy, but it ain't easy. It's, it's certainly, you know, it's not like they're lining up outside my door.
0: Hm. That's, that's really fascinating. I mean, even, you know, the years keep ticking away and the publisher, the big publishers keep... Um... Uh, not responding. Um, I was wondering um, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about uh, some of the sort of big news that's been happening in the publishing industry, or at least for insiders, the big news over the last, um, let's say, year and a half or so, where uh, uh, about um, data and the analysis of ebook sales versus print sales. Mm-hmm. Um, so, one thing one hears um, from one side is a celebration of declining ebook sales. Yeah. Um, uh, And what one hears from the other side is no celebration because, first of all, on the other side, people like ebook sales as one think publishers would, but also there is no decline in sales, is what some people are saying. Um, I was wondering what your, you know, much more informed in my own position on that on that issue might be.
1: Let me. It's it's a it's a great question and a complex uh, issue. So let me try and give a really short answer, which is hard for me to do, but I'll try and do that because otherwise I could sort of head off for 20 minutes on this, but you can then ask for some clarification. Short answer, um, yes, ebook sales are declining for the big five and for, as it turns out, a pool of about 1,200 publishers who are measured regularly by the Association of American Publishers. There is a measurable decline. Um, the factor that seems most uh, certain to be the reason for that decline is the fact that the the prices have gone way up uh, as a result of a legal thing that went on between Apple and the publishers and the Department of uh, Competition in the U.S. So you know, they, they gave the publishers the ability to up the prices, and they did, uh, and ludicrously so in my view, but they did, and you know, coincident with that, the sales have gone way down. And so it does appear very much. There's one other issue, but that seems to be the biggest one. At the same time, self-publishers are growing, growing, growing. They've reached a, some kind of a plateau recently, but this, the growth has been enormous over the last decade in self-publishing. And so yeah, all of that, you know, 97% of self-publishing activity is digital, not print. And so that, you know all of where the you know, big publishers are saying our sales and e-books are down... Well, these other people who really are your competition, and you then you know part of what they can't get their mind around is that well, this little person, this little self publisher, they're not my competition, well, en mass, they are your competition, and there are tens of thousands of them, hundreds of thousands of them, and they are succeeding where you are failing, and how are they succeeding, both by in pricing, of course, but in understanding the technology. And where the technology intersects the marketing they understand that far better than the large publishers and you know so that's that's the real story of ebooks they're no they're not declining overall
0: um i uh watched an interview with you um on youtube uh it might have been with joanna penn um oh yeah in which you talk about or, and i uh, sorry i've read a little bit about you in the last couple of days in preparation for this interview so it might have been another re- uh, source, but um where you talk about there's a kind of irony where um, Amazon is obviously gigantic um, and yeah. is uh, a preoccupation of publishers um, and <laughs> and self-publishers. Um, but actually, books, which it was known for initially, um, are a very small part overall of what Amazon does. Um, and so yeah. the, the irony is that although books and e-books even, you know, themselves as a smaller subset of book publishing generally, um, are, you know, to the rest of us, huge, It's a huge industry, right? You know, the book publishing industry is like $150 billion a year worldwide. It's bigger than than other forms of media. But uh, for Amazon, they're so big that books are a small part of what they do. And yet, they somehow just effortlessly dominate um, uh, all these other companies. And these companies have become almost entirely reliant on or, or you know existentially dependent upon Amazon doing its job well um, yep. in their world um, and I was wondering if you what your position might be on you know if you were you know CEO of a big five publishing company or if you had been for the last ten years um what what would you do uh, with respect to amazon
1: yeah that that's the huge element in in the publishing room. And you know there's a lot of antipathy towards amazon and understandably so but forget forget that they you know they're almost all of my clients Amazon is now their largest single customer and growing uh Amazon you know the numbers they suggest that Amazon controls about seventy five percent of ebook distribution in the United States, so you know most of my data i'm I'm very U.S. focused, even though I'm Canadian based. My career was built in the U.S., so you'll forgive me that my figures generally are U.S. reference. Uh, in some cases, I've also got Canadian data, but generally speaking, as we're used to, you know, the publishing industry in Canada pretty much mirrors, you know, the the structure of the U.S. company with some very significant differences. Mm-hmm. But anyway but to, to use US data is not to greatly mislead about Canada but uh, my apologies if I don't have Oh, know that's okay exactly we, the specifics
0: we are we're based in Canada but basically our you know same,
1: same issue audience.
0: with uh, audience yeah yeah
1: good good yeah so the, you know in the US 75% control of ebooks about 50% control of all book sales you know physical and digital so amazon you know it's like The contest is over. Amazon won. And you can cry about that all you want, but it's not going to help you at all. Amazon won. And a colleague of mine, Ted Hill, who's running the DBW conference next week, he has a lovely way of putting it. It's easy to provoke a response or a thought about a response. What if Amazon was not merely your biggest customer? What if they were your only customer? How would you run your publishing company? if they literally took over the rest of the market, which in fact, you know, I mean, if you track the the trend at some point, you know, that's not a completely ludicrous thing, but as a brain exercise, it's really important to think through if there is only one distributor and that distributor is Amazon and we know how they behave, what does that do to publishing? Well, you know, there, it's not all negative because Amazon's a, Fabulous marketer, you know, and, you know, as you're uh, suggesting in what you say, you know, that, yeah, books are an insignificant portion of their revenue. But part of what makes Amazon so awesome, awe-inspiring is that the markets, they don't even care about from a fiscal perspective. They, They, you know, they run them as if that was the only thing they did. And so in book marketing, they continue to be incredibly innovative, incredibly aggressive and you know it's, it's they're not getting you know it's not getting any easier to work with amazon in the same room because you have to pay attention to every little movement they make all of which are you know designed to sell more books but also for amazon to sell them at the expense of any other company they've decimated barnes and noble it's just you know if mm-hmm. burns and noble you know it's just a very sad uh last few years for them and you know it, 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 one can be critical of barnes and noble and there's lots of reasons to do so but you know if you or i were running barnes and noble we would have run it into the ground too because you, you know competing with amazon is a a mugs game you just can't do it so from a publisher's point of view it's like embrace the beast you've got mm. no choice and if you for the future of your company you know you're not single-handedly going to stop them if, if anything stops them it's going to be a uh, a groundswell, a very innovative groundswell that none of us perceive at this point, uh, but it ain't going to be you trying to single-handedly, you know, work against them. And so for all of my clients, I say, you know, embrace them wholeheartedly, you know, put on a big smile, even though you don't feel it, because mm-hmm. these are the people that are selling your books better than anyone else in the world.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great, great. And, you know, in my experience, i um, pretty original answer. Um, uh, it's. It's just so fascinating. You mentioned Barnes & Noble. I mean, watching and, and the um, the Apple and big publishers controversy from before. I mean, it's just it, – it really is in its own way a kind of fascinating comedy. Um, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I remember reading a quote, I think, from the uh, president of Barnes & Noble blaming declining sales on the election in the yes. U.S. Because people were yeah. – people are afraid and they're just staying at home watching cable all day. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I mean, point. of all the things – and I, there was – um. I think it was a, an article in Publishers Weekly where they referred to uh the price fixing uh scam that was happening at right. high levels of the publishing industry as a i think it was a government imposed uh price yes. reduction
1: the <laughs> right. willful
0: the willfulness of it uh is the thing yeah. that really fascinates me that because it it indicates that underneath people kind of know what they're wrong about. And why they're wrong, um, but there's something about what's happened in the last twenty years to publishing that a certain type of person just can't face up to. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there's nothing. What's interesting is that it's not like some kind of deep economics that you're watching or like business strategy. It's something psychological. Um, yes. E- even at positions of you know prominence uh, and responsibility, uh, nonetheless, it's yeah. this very. It's down to some personalities. Um, and their yep. own preoccupations and the um i guess the uh what to many people i mean what to you was like something you accidentally discovered which was the empowerment that comes from new technology to other people was um you know uh armageddon day um yeah. Uh, yeah. and and it's been you know sort of uh they just see the um things they associate with publishing uh which were material like you know, typesetting and stuff like that falling away and falling away and falling away. And they feel like, I think at least my view is that they feel like we're losing literature or we're losing knowledge yes. because we're right. not doing things on paper anymore. Um, and it's preposterous. Yeah. And there's this, this, I mean, really interesting conflation of the, uh, the subject with the material, um, mm-hmm.
1: uh, uh, and yeah, that's, that's the artifact, the artifact. Yeah yeah, yeah. Um, yeah we, we have to get away from the artifact from yeah. the concept of the artifact we have to look at each media or medium media however you like to do that um, as you know as an enabler as, mm-hmm. a, as one more opportunity to get the word out to um, bring in new readers to bring in new opportunities these things are enablers uh, they're not artifacts. Mm-hmm. Um, One thing you're saying there that reminds me of uh, something a colleague told me 25 years ago. He says, the only sustainable competitive advantage is understanding and adopting technology faster than your competitors. And the point of that with book publishers is... Business is debugged. We know how to run book publishers in the traditional way. That There's nothing left to discover there. There's nothing you can know that your competitor doesn't know. The only thing you can know that your competitor doesn't know is how to, for example, use metadata more strategically than they do, how to uh, maximize the efficiencies of the EPUB format better than they do, Understanding the supply chain and how metadata informs the supply chain faster than they do, aside from that you're, you you have no competitive strength, and that to me is is sort of the summation of where we we stand as an industry. Technology is the only thing that's going to you know save you let's put it that way
0: um, on that subject, moving uh from the big to the small, I suppose um, uh, you very recently just um three days ago. Um, released a report called an authoritative look at book publishing startups in the United States. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, I mean, a lot of the um, it's a very long uh, list of companies that you've that you've compiled there. Um, And uh, some of them uh, uh, are are failed companies. Um, Some of them are plugging along. Um, Many of them were at least attempting to innovate in one way or another um, technologically. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk, I mean, to begin with a little bit about um, what the origins are of this report
1: and why, sure, why you sure. were
0: interested in, in, writing, in writing it.
1: Yeah. You know, I, five years ago I was on you know this panel at Tools of Change on the topic of startups and I was the contrarian on the panel. And uh, the four other people on the panel were all like, Thad, you know, you're just being very, very negative. You know, the, these are amazing opportunities. These are some amazing companies, and you know, they're going to flourish. And the book publishing industry is, you know, fertile ground for startups. And you know, your, your negativism is you know, completely ill, you know, incorrectly placed. And um, you know, I, I can be a, a negativist, uh, and so I was, I was, you know, a little bit uh, stung by that, but. got me to thinking well why don't i go deeper on this and really find out what's going on here and it turned out to be quite an interesting rabbit hole i found 900 companies and you know started sort of hoarding collecting uh over the next five years You know, every time i heard about a new startup i would download the information on that startup if it came out of a you know blog post or something in publishers weekly or someone would tell me about it i'd go to their website and get their mission statement, add that to the spreadsheet. And, you know, it kept growing for 300, 600. I, I did an interim report when there were 600. Then, you know, now it was up over 800. And it was like, what am I going to do with this? Well, I decided in the end I'll, I'll distribute it freely uh, to the industry so they can get a look at, at what the startup scene is. And I I did some quantitative analysis of the data to try and understand what areas these startups were working in, what kind of funding they got, uh, whether they'd had any mergers, whether they'd been acquired. A couple of them had gone public. Uh, how many had gone out of business? About a third of them have. Uh, so it, that's that's the, the the nut of what's in this report that, that came out earlier this week.
0: Yeah, I read, um, speaking of your negativity on that panel five years ago, I looked at your slide deck um, related to that talk. Oh, um, you saw that? And uh, I was curious. I mean, what has you have your views changed about book publishing startups in the last five years? Um, uh, what what would you how would you characterize the current state of affairs? Uh, good book question. Publishing startups.
1: Yeah, good question. You know, it's as I was doing the report, uh, the cynical side of me was you know was reminded some of these startups are so goofy. <laughs> They're just like. And not only, you know, is this, you know, startup number 231 goofy, uh, that's just a number, uh, mm-hmm. but then you find out that startup number 427 is, is got the same idea and launched six months later. And so we have one goofy idea that's, you know, has not made this company successful and another company is coming in with the same goofy idea and they're going to try and do it too. And so there was a lot of that, you know, where, where that I, as I was building this list, you know, and I'd find out of a new one, I'd think, oh, a new startup, can I add them to the list? Oh my God, their mission statement is the same as 23 others of these startups, that you know, a third of which are already out of business. And so mm-hmm. what what I saw going on there is, you know, that there's a cult of startups, right? You know, and I pointed out a little bit in the report, but you know, we know it, right? I mean, the, the media, you know, whatever newspaper or website you're on, you know, as long as that company can say we're a startup and we're looking to disrupt this or that, uh, the, the media eats it up because the public eats it up because there are so many glamorous stories Around you know the, the magic you know billions that can be made out of you know out of thin air six months after startup so I understand what the allure of that is but people have to you know get down to earth a little bit more and realize that just because they said they're a startup just because they're enabled by the web just because there's you know Mark Zuckerberg exists doesn't mean this is a good idea or that this company's going anywhere so you know, that's the downside. On the other hand, you know what you've got is a lot of smart people, committed, you know, willing to you know put their careers and, and their livelihood on the line to try and bring some real innovation to the publishing industry, and that's a great thing, and that's something that you know I, I keep reminding myself of. That you know, bottom line is like Thad, forget about the dumb ones, you know, focus on the interesting ones, and so I'm hoping in the months ahead on my blog to you know, profile uh, as many as I can that are the ones that are the most innovative, the most intriguing, even if they're, you know, very, very small. Uh, there's some that, you know, really do have some nifty ideas. And I, would like to spread the word about the best of them.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, one, one example of a type of startup that, um, was backed by uh, really smart people and run by really smart people and had talented staff, um, is Oyster. Um, yes. And, uh, I, I bring them up, um, uh, not to pick on them, but because their particular approach was very interesting. It was a subscription-based model. I mean, in the end, they had a they had um, a bookstore, but primarily their business was aimed at people who they believed would pay a monthly fee to have access to loads of books. Um, yeah, uh, there's other examples. I mean, there was Scribd had something similar. Um, yeah, uh, with romance books that that sort of you know, went belly up. Um, Oyster's team, just for those listening, got um, uh, acquired by Google, I think, um, or much, mm-hmm. many of their team, or some people on their team were. Um, sure. And um, uh, what do you, I mean, now now the, the example of a subscription model that appears to be working is um, Amazon's Kindle Unlimited. Um, uh, yes. Although that's a, that's a very curious piece. And I was wondering what your opinion is, you know, looking back on the last couple of years, do you believe in, uh, book subscription models do you think there's something that can succeed for a business and on the other side do you think it's something that a self-published author um, should put their material into
1: right <clears throat> to me and you know at the time you know it's easy now retrospectively because they have failed to say well it wasn't a good idea but at the time before they failed there was a lot of hype surrounding it and I was thinking like subscription model all the books that you would want to get hold of isn't that called the public library I think I already got that and I don't pay you know an annual fee and and I I you know I can get hold of, and if, if that you know if my branch doesn't have it they have inter-branch loans and so on so the only thing that made sense on the subscription model to me was this kind of in you know, instant access um, not having to go through the queue at the library or get on, you know, for the popular books, you have to wait a couple of months till it, if you want the ebook version till it becomes available or even the print version, sometimes you're on a list for a couple of months. So for instant gratification, the subscription model made sense, except there too, it fell apart because no matter what they were going to be missing some of the books you wanted because, you know, they could always, you know, even if they had the big five, which they didn't, but let's say all the big five agreed to it. That's only you know 50% of the trade books published by established companies, leaving out the self-published authors. Only 50% of the books published each year in the United States come from the big five. So you know, and it's another several thousand publishers that you need to sign up if you want the other 50%. So that you know, they were it was never going to be a place where I you know where I could say to myself, oh, I'll just go on to Oyster because I can get it right away. I can go onto to Amazon and I can buy it right away, and you know, so that's already available to me and it's only a few bucks and I can have it instantly. So the, the subscription model to me was never a profoundly smart idea. And what Oyster ran into was a, you know, a particular problem whereby they you know, couldn't get the publishers on board and so they had to pay way too much for these books and so it was not economically feasible, which hastened their demise. Uh, Scribd, you know, is still in business uh, for various reasons, but virtually all of the subscription ones that are on my list you know, have gone out of business. And so, to me, that was a combination of the publishers undermining them, but also that you know, the primary value proposition had not been fully developed, and you know, it, it wasn't that compelling. If indeed, you know, I mean, is it our manifest destiny that Kevin Kelly would argue that every book is going to be online? Uh, and available to us on a subscription model eventually uh, that somehow we'll figure out, you know, the way to have one source. Would it be a public source? I don't know. Would it be, will it be Amazon? I mean, you know, who knows? Uh, but sort of our manifest destiny or the way it would best work for people is, yes, you could access any book at any time, you know, in the moment that you're interested in doing it. You don't have to purchase it. You can either, you know, have either borrow it with some sort of funded subscription model or whatever it would be. You know, that makes sense to me over time. How we're going to get from here to there, I don't know.
0: And um, if you were uh, advising a self-published author or a group of self-published authors, would you um, recommend to them that they try uh, Amazon's... Um,
1: Kindle Unlimited. Kindle Unlimited
0: um, and put it in there Yeah, that's another
1: tough one. Go ahead. I was it's, just going to say,
0: yeah, for, for those who aren't listening, one of the... Um, interesting things about this service is that Amazon a, if you're a self-published author and you put your book in there, um, a app, uh, Amazon imposes some restrictions on you, on what you can do with your book and where else you can sell it and how much you can sell it for and things like that. But also, as I understand it, um, they, the, the money that obviously for a subscription service just goes into a big pool and then, uh, an inherent and inescapable part of the process then is that you have to decide how to divvy up the money. Um, and that, yep. that, that, uh, Calculation is entirely up to Amazon. Um, and I think their latest way of doing it is to um, look at how many pages have been read in your book. Yeah. Um, and then this is something that immediately uh, a lot of uh, enterprising characters began taking advantage of by figuring out, for example, that <laughs> Amazon wasn't actually counting the pages that were looked at. It was just looking at the highest number page that had been looked at. So what people were doing was basically putting up more or less fake books that were hundreds of pages of long, let's say, and then having a link at the beginning of the book to the last page of the book. Um, and then that would be sending the signal yeah. to Amazon that someone had read all 580 <laughs> pages of cat, 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 cat. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, and so there's, there's, there, there is this inherent sort of murkiness to what goes on. And in, in, in the subscription, in a subscription service like that. And there's also, uh, you're also susceptible to, like, change in the same way that, you know, internet companies can be screwed over by Google changing its algorithm. Uh, and right. for search results, like, one day you can see, you know, your ranking fall dramatically. Um, uh, similarly, you're exposed to, you know, Amazon just deciding one day to count uh, differently and divvy up those funds differently.
1: Yeah, it's a hornet's nest, absolutely. And, you know, so let's think of the downside of it. The biggest downside is they demand exclusivity you you cannot distribute your book outside of Amazon if you want to be part of Kindle Unlimited Mm -hmm. and that's that's a big restriction right and uh, you know for certain authors of certain genre fiction uh, to get that extra boost just through Amazon can offset the potential loss of sales from other distributors Uh, but if you're an author of substance if I can use that as a broad you know, rubric to suggest you know the more committed fiction writers and all of the non-fiction writers who are trying to produce you know books that really add to the canon um it's 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 not it's an unacceptable restriction there's too many other ways that readers you know are that you will miss being able to con- connect with readers if you you know if you Stick with that restriction so it, it works best for genre fiction and it is a chunk of change You know, I mean they put 15 16 million dollars a month into that fund So, you know in fact, you know, you think about it over an, you know on an annualized basis it's upwards of 200 million dollars Of what amounts to royalties? Mm-hmm. Uh, that are going to the self-published author community but economically it's you know very very significant but you know the bottom line for me as a self-published author, as well as all these other things. But you know the books that I have that I self publish No, I'm you know I'm, they're they're you know my books are technical. And they're not you know uh, exciting mysteries. But it, it, you know it's out of the question that I would use Kindle Unlimited. It would just restrict my audience far too much. So then you know who who are the audience for Kindle Unlimited? They do have to pay a subscription fee but it's it's you know the, in the old days you know we, it when there was only romances were the only really consistent uh, genre where you know, like harlequin in those days would publish weekly and you get a new book every week And, you know, there was a a defined audience of people who wanted a new romance per week and they weren't particularly fussy as to which author they they would. You know, they liked a particular sort of subgenre within romance. But that's spread now where there's a lot of people who feel the same way about certain kinds of mysteries, certain kinds of thrillers. They like to get a book a week or even more than a book a week. And this fulfills that. You know, there's enough good stuff in KU that it's cheaper to be a subscriber to that. Than it would be to buy those books individually, but that's a pretty narrow use case. And KU Kindle Unlimited gets a lot more press than it really needs to, because it's I guess it's become sort of emblematic of Amazon's you know power and ruthless use of power and ability to, as you say, you know change the rules according to their whims and to be exposed to scammers. So it's a very visible thing, but in terms of really its significance as a phenomenon for the book publishing industry is all it's much less than meets the eye.
0: Looking towards um, the future, um, uh, in a recent blog post you wrote, and I'm going to quote you here, um, uh, central to the future of publishing is understanding where AI intersects with traditional book publishing. Uh And, yes. um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about... Um, where you see artificial intelligence intersecting with traditional book publishing and why you think that's, uh, that might be a powerful
1: uh, feature of the future. Sure. The starting point for my interest in, in AI and book publishing, well, it actually goes back a few years. Um, Let me try and give a short answer and see how that works. Um, There's, there is a category of publishing technology that has to do with expressing you know the meaning rather than just saying you know um, if we have a whole paragraph describing uh, you know a politician's education, just the education of that politician, and you know we've got four hundred words within a much larger biography of that politician that talks about her you know time in high school and college and the education that she gained, well. There's the abstraction of of that is a semantic, you know, it would be, you know, X, Y, Z, politician, education, uh, college and, you know, um, secondary or secondary, you know, and college education. Uh, So there's that abstract layer in which we we describe the, you know, the meta meaning of of a type of content. And so when you get at that meta level You have another layer at which you can process content where you don't have to, you know, regurgitate every single word in the book. And so we can get it to the, like, if we can abstract it to that level, well, then someone who's interested in the education of politicians can do a search of everything that's been classified at that semantic level and be able to much more quickly Find, you know, because it's not a whole book about that, they can find all of the subsections within all of the published literature that cover that particular topic. And so it's, it's a potentially very powerful way of classifying this, you know, enormous and uncontrollable multi billions of words that have been published and remain mm-hmm. in print from books, you know, that have been published over the centuries, literally now. And this then. It starts to suggest that there are data mining methods that might um, increase our access or understanding of, of published work. So that was a starting point for me was trying to understand the semantics and how that would intersect with book publishing. The next thing that happened is Google, uh, Yahoo, and Yandex in the U uh, in Russia. Um, came up with a standard called schema.org, which is based on semantic representations of content and allows those search engines to um, understand content better than, you know, if if you make the effort to explain what the content is at a semantic level, those search engines can do a better job of of locating your content. So that put a big impetus, impetus onto publishers to start to get a handle on semantics as well and just take a sip of water here sure um so then the next thing that happened that that uh, that triggered me was this book that you would have seen on my blog where i reviewed it on a couple of posts that the bestseller code and the bestseller code is a fascinating book whereby the the two authors who are both scientists they are scientists these aren't just you know it's not just a you know an uh, exploitive you know look at some secret little method that these they came up with that's the magic bestseller code. No, these people have done some very extensive uh analysis of the uh patterns of the of the words in in certain uh, in bestselling book of the sentiments that are uh, aroused within by by those words, types of characters, the plot arc, and all this sort of thing. Uh, and have have come up with a formula, a code, the bestseller code, that identifies the commonalities in the books that have become New York Times bestsellers. And while they aren't willing to offer it as a prescriptive, i.e. do this, your book will become one of those bestsellers, the, the their interim report is really what the book amounts to, where they're able to say, we have in fact come up with a, a, a scientific quantification of, of books, you know, and so using the techniques that we now uh, put under the broad rubric of artificial intelligence, things such as sentiment analysis, text mining, uh, what, what what else to be in there, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but you, you know what I mean. So th- th- there are a whole um, a set of, of uh, secondary technologies that are thrown under the, the umbrella of Intelligence. And so this was the first really big uh, obvious uh, use of the tools of AI towards a specific outcome. And you know, it certainly as a publisher, every you know, you just have to start scratching your head and saying, okay, so could I use some of this text mining sentiment analysis to evaluate incoming manuscripts and be able to make some kind of a Qualitative assessment based not just on a human reading of that book. Well, maybe you could. We don't. We you know this is some of the questions that are posed by that. So, that in so coming back to the question that you're posing to me, what my feeling is is that the the science of artificial intelligence is is coming forward by leaps and bounds. The publishing industry has enormous amounts of data in the form of text. And there's going to be, there is an intersection point between those two things that we're just beginning to get a look at, but which I think is going to be quite profound in the years to follow.
0: Yeah, well, thanks for that. That's a really great answer. It was um, uh, sparking in me um, thinking about Netflix. Um, uh, Netflix sort of uh, is well known for having um, highly detailed uh, metadata around uh, its shows. Um, right, and um, you know it can be like, you know, this person likes movies that are kind of like Quentin Tarantino movies, which have characters named Joe who dies in scene in Act Three uh, when something yep. falls on his head. You know, it'll be like very, and they'll, they they can categorize the same show many different ways like that. And um, yep. what people talk about is how they're actually using all that viewer information both to do both to encourage you know the discoverability. Of things that people will want to watch, but actually also to create new shows they base their decisions yeah. for what to do what what how shows should what shows to choose, and perhaps how they should be written, what should happen to the characters in them uh based on this this information that they have about people's viewing habits um and uh um it's uh it's a fascinating future um uh, ahead of us where that kind of um, data can be used to make decisions and put in front of people and then iterate on it and see, well, did that work or did that not work? You can follow the experiment
1: through and
0: look 10 years yep. ahead to what you want to do.
1: In the Netflix uh, example is particularly good uh, one to spend some time with um, the, you know, my brief comment on that would be, you know, I was initially quite thrilled to learn about what you know, Netflix has done and you, you, you'll probably remember the Netflix prize where they offered a million dollars to a team of scientists that could improve the accuracy of their recommendation engine by, I think, 10%. So, it's, you know, get 10% better at, at successfully recommending uh, next viewing product to customers. Um, there's a whole separate, I'll leave the, 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 that story is a fun little story and how it played out. But it you know it points to what you're talking about where you know they do at Netflix you know have a lot of scientists on staff looking at how these things can be solved and towards the ultimate task of can we develop shows whole well, shows where we plot them high, you know develop the characters, which kind of actors are we going to hire how are the what's the plot art going to be and you know can we create successful series on that basis and so the you know House of cards was the first poster child for that outcome. What I point out to people these days is get a listing of Netflix series that have launched in the last three to five years and find out how many of them are still being broadcast. today. They've had a lot of failures and Mm -hmm. people keep talking about their successes. They've had a lot of failures and, and this is no slam on Netflix. It's only a reminder that this technology is still very much in flux and that people are not robots, so you you know you cannot uh, predict with you know with hundred percent dependability or anything near that number uh, using science. But you can get closer to it. And so the smart you know the, the if uh, the best um, users of the technology are those who fully understand these limitations.
0: Yeah, thanks for that. On, on on the note that people are not robots, um, uh, something I very much agree with. Um and I think it's an optimistic thing, although I do like robots too. Um uh <laughs> I I just wanted to say uh thanks very much for um a fascinating interview and for giving uh giving giving uh me and all of our listeners uh the time. Um uh, cool. and uh yeah uh good luck uh at the um Digital Book World Conference in New York this week. Um and uh yeah all the best uh
1: from me. Well thanks so much man I, I enjoy chatting with you. You are um Better informed than anyone I've spoken to in the last several years uh, in terms of preparing for the interview. I'm, I'm really pleased because it just made it a lot more fun that you'd taken the time to to look at things and ask such smart questions.
0: Well, thanks very much, and I'm going to leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, thanks,
1: Dad. <laughs> Great, my pleasure.